Hello to everyone. My name is Jason Holman, and you're listening to the first episode of the Save from Death podcast. In this episode, I am going to preach a sermon called Righteousness Does Matter. Throughout this sermon, I will be reading word for word. I am personally not a fan of reading word for word because it can be a little bit lifeless and dull. However, if this sermon is being preached through the will and power of God, it will be effective in spite of the fact that I am reading. I have no idea of what will come after the sermon is preached. It is my understanding that two things are possible. It is possible that nothing will happen after the sermon is preached. And it is also possible that the world will be turned upside down as a result of the sermon. I have no power to control what happens, and so I have no idea as to what will happen. All I know is that in order for me to obtain peace in my own life, this sermon must be preached. I have a question that I need an answer to. It is my belief that I will get an answer to this question once this sermon is published. If nothing happens after this message is shared, I will have an answer to my question. And if something big happens as a result of the sermon, I will also have my answer. Either outcome is perfectly fine with me, because either outcome will provide an answer for this thing I need to know. Though I do not know what will come of this sermon, I will make one bold prediction about it. It is my confidence that this sermon will be heard by only a tiny few, or that it will be heard by millions. I am confident that there will be nothing in between. If you come back in a month to find out how many people have listened to this message, you are going to find that it will be less than 50 or more than a million. There simply will not be a middle ground. I am not certain that something big is going to happen after the sermon is preached, but I am certain that if something is intended to happen, then it is going to happen fast. If something big is about to happen, then I am certain that it is going to be the biggest and fastest move of God in the history of the world. Rest assured, if you listen and find your heart pricked and set ablaze, you will certainly not be the only one. You will simply be one of millions. If one person is affected by the sermon, then millions are going to be affected by the sermon. And if millions are not affected by the sermon, then no one will be affected by it. At a later time, I will try to explain why I think this is, and I will give you some insight into the question I am hoping to have answered by preaching the sermon. But that will have to wait until another time. I have done enough vain rambling, and it is time to move forward and find out what God intends to accomplish. This sermon is titled, Righteousness Does Matter. I am about to say some things that will paint the world around us in a very negative light. However, I want it to be understood that I am confident that this seemingly chaotic world is still very much under the full control of a very good and wise God. Yes, this world is overflowing with the works of wicked and evil men, but these evil men do nothing without the ultimate and final approval of God. It is with that in mind that I say all of the following. Today we live in a world that is a cesspool of unrighteousness. All day long, men and women trespass against their neighbor and do so with no fear of consequence. Men lie, cheat, deceive, steal, murder, and harass, and they do so without a second thought. We live in a world where people think it is funny and acceptable to take a photo of someone inside a public place just because they see that person as different and laugh-worthy. These photos are then posted on online for the amusement of others just to get a reaction and a like. Men do such wickedness with no consideration of the victim's God-given right to live a life free of harassment. 
We live in a world where people will post articles with misleading titles and pictures in order to entice others to click into those articles just so they can increase viewership and revenue. They do this with no regard for the God-given right of others to live a life free from the fear of being deceived. We live in a world where we constantly have to be diligent in order to not be taken advantage of. Millions of fake emails and texts are sent each and every day by evil men with the intent to take what is not theirs by using scare tactics to manipulate the victims into providing them with financial information that allows them to take what does not belong to them. We live in a world where people share pictures and stories about themselves each and every day just to create envy. It's one thing to share something because your heart is glad and thankful, but it is a wicked thing to share something to make others feel less satisfied with their own life. Men and women destroy the contentment of another person, and they do so with no shame or regret. We live in a world where nothing that is spoken can be trusted. We must be skeptical of what is reported on the news. We must be skeptical of what we see on Facebook. We must be skeptical skeptical of what we hear from our fellow man because men think it is no big deal to twist the fact in order to fit their agenda. When a person thinks that their cause is correct and righteous, they gladly misrepresent facts to bring support to their cause. In order to sway others towards their opinion, they pick and choose the facts that support their agenda while ignoring the facts that don't. We live in a world where it is nothing to complain publicly about others when we have no absolute knowledge of the truth. We use the power of Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter to complain about every injustice we face when we don't really know the whole story behind our perceived injustice. We complain when we don't get the service we expect from a certain store or restaurant and fail to consider the struggles those businesses must face to keep a full staff in a full inventory so we can be served. We live in a world where people think it is nothing to use these digital platforms to shame others into the behavior they desire. These arrogant and wicked bullies shout and scream at all who do not do exactly as they wish, and they try to play God by destroying the life of those who do not yield to their self-righteous point of view. They scream, shout, and destroy lives with no recognition that they are every bit as evil as the people they are screaming about. We live in a world where people buy and devour just because they can. People foolishly believe that their ability to purchase an item is their God-given permission to buy that item. And so we buy, buy, buy as much of something as we want with no consideration of how our actions may affect others down the line. We fail to recognize that our ability to purchase more than our fair share does not give us permission from our Creator to do so. We live in a world where some think it is okay to force others to inject unnatural chemicals into their bodies just so they can worry a little bit less about getting sick. In their godless and evil imaginations, some think they have a right to actually make another human put something in their body even when doing so is against that person's will. They blatantly reject the fact that that body was given to that person by God and that it is theirs to do with as they wish. But on the other side of the aisle, those who rightfully oppose vaccine mandates knowingly and maliciously twist facts to make it appear that the vaccination does more harm than good. They do this and completely ignore the fact that their misrepresentation of the vaccine is just as evil as the government's intent to force the vaccine upon those who do not wish to take it. We live in a world where the powers that be think it is nothing to compel children to cover their face in an unnatural way just so they can spread a few less germs. 
All day long, children are placed in bondage by those who fail to recognize that that child has a God-given right to not endure the discomfort of such evil nonsense. With no fear of God, they boldly abuse his children for their own personal gain of feeling just a little less afraid. We live in a world where everyone is forced to spend money that we shouldn't have to spend just to protect ourselves from the wickedness of others. Because men cannot be trusted to treat their fellow man with decency and respect, we are forced to build fences and install locks. Billions of dollars that could be invested towards things of true enjoyment must instead be diverted to fund police and militaries, all because men can't respect that which belongs to another. We live in a world where no one values the time and space that belongs to another. We invite people to our boring events and then expect them to show up. If we choose to host a wedding, funeral, or graduation ceremony, then fine, that is our right to do so. But we have no right to expect others to attend these functions. A person's time is theirs to do with as they please. It has been given to them by God and no one else has a right to touch it for any reason. And this is especially true for reasons that only serve to boost our faltering ego. Stealing a person's time through pressure and manipulation is just as evil and wrong in the sight of God as stealing their physical belongings. We live in a world where some feel that they have the right to tell consenting adults what they can and cannot do in the privacy of their own home. In the name of a God who is passionate about liberty, we try to limit the liberty of others because they use their God-given liberty in a way we find offensive. In the name of righteousness, we become the enemies of righteousness as we encourage the government to create laws that destroy liberty instead of protecting it. As long as this world is filled with wicked and godless men, law is a good and necessary thing. But all law must be about preserving and protecting God-given rights and never about taking rights away because we disagree with those rights. We live in a world where people are surrounded with nothing but vain pressure. We are expected to send cards and gifts for every silly little holiday some unhappy soul decided to create. We are expected to attend family functions just because it's what you're supposed to do. We are expected and pressured to support one fundraiser after another when we personally have no interest in the thing we are supporting. We are constantly expected to say the right thing and do the right thing in order to avoid the judgment and criticism of others. No one is able to truly enjoy anything because we are constantly exerting effort to make sure that we do not offend. We live in a world where companies think that it is no big deal to misrepresent their products. With no conscience or fear of God, they will knowingly make promises that they know their product cannot live up to, all to gain a dollar. They fail to realize that they are no better than a common thief. They knowingly and blatantly take money from others knowing that they are not truly giving those people a product that is worth the money they were paid. We live in a world where the things that belong to another are not respected. We live in a world where people trample the time of others. We live in a world where men trample the property of others. We live in a world where men rob others of peace and quiet with their need to be obnoxiously loud. We live in a world where men steal the visibility of the nighttime stars with our excessive and needless light. We live in a world where men steal the ability to enjoy the beauty of the earth as they destroy it through their acts of greed and carelessness. This is the world as I see it. It is a world of bondage and oppression. It is a world of noise and chaos. It is a world where men run to and fro all day long, doing, 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 and yet never seeking the one who created them to find out if their constant doing is really good and acceptable in the sight of God. I live in a world where the vast majority of mankind take action without being certain that their action is harmless to their neighbor and acceptable to God. But why does such apathy towards righteousness exist? 
Why do men and women trespass against their neighbor without any fear of judgment? Why do we not pause before each and every action we take to make sure our action is safe, harmless, and acceptable in the eyes of God? Why do we walk carelessly through life instead of walking carefully? We do so because men no longer fear God. And the reason men no longer fear God is because we have been taught that it is impossible for men to walk in perfect righteousness. We then conclude that if it is impossible to walk in perfect righteousness, then God must not expect us to walk in perfect righteousness, because a righteous God would not require something of us that is impossible to do. This conclusion then leaves men with a valid excuse to walk carelessly before the righteousness-loving God that created them. Since we cannot possibly walk in perfect righteousness, why devote the time and energy into making sure that we do? But I ask you today, are you positive that it's impossible to walk in perfect righteousness? And if you are positive that we cannot, then how did you become positive? Are you positive because you have listened to man? Or are you positive because you have listened to your God? If you are truly positive that man cannot walk in perfect righteousness because God said it is impossible, then you are certainly justified in your careless and apathetic way of life. But if you have reached this conclusion only because you have listened to man, your apathy towards righteousness is going to certainly be used against you on the day of judgment. If you find out on the day of judgment that you could have walked in perfect righteousness but failed to do so because you believed the opinion of man that it was, it was impossible to do, the fact you were led astray by man will play no part in affecting God's verdict against you. Even though God might recognize that your apathy towards righteousness was a result of genuine and honest deception, he will also recognize that you were only deceived because you chose to listen to man instead of God. Over and over again, the scripture makes it clear that we are to listen to God and not man, and that kind of mandate is not something one can be confused about. So even though you were honestly deceived because you were listening to man, your choice to listen to man instead of God was a blatant choice that cannot be covered with any kind of excuse. In light of what the Apostle Paul wrote about sin, righteousness, the law, and grace, it is very possible that one could honestly be deceived and led astray by his very good and life-giving words. Paul was incredibly wise and had an incredible understanding of the salvation that God had to offer man. But Paul always spoke in the assumption that others had the same fullness of knowledge as he. So for this reason, Paul did not take time to break down every word and definition in order to make sure that there, that there was no misunderstanding in what he was saying. He just spoke as he understood things and left the results in the hands of God. Paul spoke with the assumption that his words would only ever be interpreted to the absolute truth that God had already established. Paul wrote with the assumption that he was speaking to men who truly feared God and to men who truly longed for righteousness. It never occurred to Paul that his listeners could be a people that were apathetic about listening to God and a people that did not hunger and thirst to be made righteous. Paul wrote under the assumption that all of his readers and listeners feared God and that all men longed to walk in perfect righteousness. So for that reason, he never felt the need to express the importance of those things. Instead, he only spoke of the paths that lead to perfect righteousness. Paul understood that the path to perfect righteousness was not obedience to a law, and he knew that one could only reach the place of perfect righteousness with the divine help and power of God. He referred to this divine help and power of God as grace. He assumed that his listeners clearly understood the meaning of the word grace, and it never once crossed his mind that his all-important word would someday be used as a way to convey God's willingness to overlook our sinfulness and inability to walk in perfect righteousness.
It never occurred to Paul that such a thing could possibly happen. Little did Paul know that men who did not truly fear God and men who did not desire to walk perfectly before their God would one day read his words and then use his words to justify their apathy towards a creator and their apathy towards perfect righteousness. But that is exactly what happened. Men who had no fear of God and men who had no real love for that which is good and right would one day use the words of Paul to their own destruction. Eventually, the true meaning and intent of Paul's words and letters would be completely lost, and his words would be used to justify a doctrine of apathy towards righteousness. Over the years, many people would sincerely latch on to this doctrine that exists through the misunderstanding of Paul, and they would hold on to these false teachings, sincerely believing that they were doing the right thing. Because they believe that they are doing the right thing, it is true to say that these people were honestly deceived. But because their honest deception is rooted in their choice to listen to man instead of God, their honest deception will do nothing to help them avoid God's just and right judgment against the sins they committed inside that deception. God is well aware that Paul's letters could easily be misunderstood if they are read alone and read as final authority. God recognizes that the letters of Paul really do seem to indicate that God does not expect us to walk in perfect righteousness because doing so is impossible. God is not blind, and he is not unreasonable. He fully understands how one could rightfully be led astray by the teachings of Paul. But God also recognized that there is no excuse to place the teachings of man above the teachings of God and above the teachings of his son. God makes it clear that it is his voice we are to listen to first and foremost. And he knows that if we would listen to him first, it would be impossible to be led astray by the words of Paul. The words of Paul are only a trip hazard for those who do who dare to use them as a means to minimize the clear and absolute things that God has already firmly established. Those who read Paul under the authority of God and his Christ will be perfectly safe, but those who listen to God and Christ under the authority of Paul are making a very grave mistake. To minimize the importance that God and his Son placed on righteousness because of what Paul wrote is absolute foolish and rebellious. And those who choose to continue in that rebellion will do so to their own final and forever destruction. When we read from Paul, we must only do so under the authority of what God has already established. If you read the words of Paul and conclude that God is in any way apathetic about true, practical, and perfect righteousness, you have simply placed the cart before the horse. God is passionate about righteousness, and his word makes it clear. In just a moment, we are going to look at several scriptures that speak of righteousness and God's passion for it. But before we do, I think that it would be best to define righteousness. Once we understand what righteousness is all about, we will understand why God is so passionate about it. Contrary to popular opinion, righteousness pretty much has no connection to a list of meaningless do's and don'ts. So long as our conscience is clean before God, a person can pretty much do as they please so long as their action does not trespass against the peace and contentment of another conscious being. A person who has listened to God and comes to know the truth will understand that righteousness has no connection to the books we read, the music we listen to, the TV shows we watch, the way we speak, and the physical pleasures we choose to enjoy. Rather, righteousness and unrighteousness is always connected to the way our action affects the peace and contentment of another. So long as our action has no potential to frustrate the God-given rights of another, our action will not be sin. But once our pursuit of enjoyment causes us to step out of our boundaries and into the boundaries of another, you have sinned and become an enemy of God. 
in the grand scheme of things, God can care less as to whether or not you choose to smoke that joint. As long as the rights of no one are trampled in the process, God will have nothing to say. But the moment your choice to get high interferes with the God-given rights of another, you are in danger of judgment. If you getting high can stay between you and yourself, you are most likely good to go. But if your choice to get high causes you to neglect those who are under your care, then you are in danger of judgment. Or if your choice to get high causes you to place others in harm's way, you are in danger of judgment. Or if your smoking subjects others to the unpleasant smell of marijuana in a place that they have the right to not have to smell marijuana, you are in danger of judgment. Actions themselves are of very little concern to our Creator, but a person's right to peace and contentment is of great concern. God has no desire to restrict your liberty, but He is very determined to restrict you from destroying the liberty of another. All men have a right to be free from frustration. All men have a right to be content. God has no interest in telling you what to do and what not to do, but He does have an interest in making sure that you never rob someone else of the contentment they are entitled to. Another example of this could be the way we speak. God has no intention to tell you what you can or cannot say in regards to the words you choose to use. As long as you are in private or as long as you are in in an environment where swearing is accepted, expected, and permissible, you can use whatever language you, you choose. But when you carry that language into the midst of others who do not have that same freedom or into a place where that kind of language is not expected and force it on the ears of others who find such language unpleasant, you are once again in danger of judgment. The action of cursing on its own is meaningless, but it becomes meaningful if our cursing is unchecked and used in places where such language is not permissible or accepted. God is not a nitpicky old man. The God I know is incredibly fun, incredibly joyful, and incredibly imaginative. He loves to create good things and to see those things enjoyed. But the same good, loving, and fun God can turn immediately vicious and terrifying the moment we show disrespect for the things that rightfully belong to another. And that is simply the best way to understand righteousness. Righteousness is the act of respecting all that belongs to another. Every being that God creates has a right to be at peace and content. When our actions wrongfully trample the peace and contentment of another, we have sinned. God does not take this lightly, and he hates those that do such acts of violence against another. You can enjoy all that God has given to you in any way you wish, so long as your enjoyment does not come at the loss of someone else's enjoyment. God loves to watch you enjoy yourself when your enjoyment is contained within the proper boundaries. But the same God who is rejoicing over you one moment can wish you dead the next if your action trespasses against another. And this is the great paradox of our Creator. He loves liberty and rejoices to give liberty and to see that liberty enjoyed. But it is His same great love for liberty that makes Him so utterly terrifying. His love for liberty is so strong that He can't help but hate those who destroy the liberty of another. If you were to suddenly catch a vision of God's love for liberty and his commitment to liberty, this vision would do nothing to increase your own liberty. Instead, if you were to suddenly catch a vision of God's love for liberty, you would be terrified and afraid to move. You would not dare move because you would not dare to do anything that could potentially frustrate the peace and contentment of another. Liberty and righteousness go hand in hand. A righteous man is a man who walks in perfect liberty in all aspects of his own life without ever trampling the liberty of another being in a process. If a man is walking in liberty towards himself and tramples others in a process, then that man is not righteous. 
And yet if the same man gives up his own liberty to ensure that he does not trample the peace and contentment of another, that man is still not righteous. In order for true righteousness to be present in a man, that man must know how to walk in complete freedom at all times in his own life without destroying the freedom of another in the process. The creation of this man is something that only God himself can create. It is an extremely involved and complicated process because God himself has certain legal hurdles that he too must obey. Before God can begin this work, we have to give him our full consent, and the first step of consent is agreeing to truly listen to him. We must recognize that as our creator, he is worthy of our full and undivided attention, and we must give him this full and undivided attention. And those who are apathetic about perfect righteousness are clearly, clearly not listening to the one who created them. For if you were really listening, you would not be apathetic about this wonderful thing called righteousness. Instead, you would be seeking it with all your heart because you would recognize just how important it really is, and you would be aggressively and attentively seeking the only one that can make you truly and perfectly righteous. But as it stands now, you are apathetic about this wonderful thing called righteousness because you have been listening to the voice of man instead of the voice of God. It is only wicked and careless men who claim that true and practical righteousness are not necessary. The God who created you never said any such thing. These are the things that God has to say about righteousness. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Psalms chapter 11, verses 5, 6, and 7. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fires, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Psalms chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that worketh uprightly and worketh righteousness, and he that speaketh the truth in his heart. Psalms chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Psalms chapter 33, verse 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalms chapter 106, verses 1, 2, and 3. Praise ye the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivereth from death. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 9. The way of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord, but he loveth him that followeth after righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exerciseth loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgments. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Now let's look at a few verses from the New Testament about righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven.
Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Second, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. For even hereunto ye were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. First John chapter 2 verse 29. If ye know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. First John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And let us also consider Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things have mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. So now I ask, did you hear anything from those passages I just read that indicate in any way that God is passive about unrighteousness? Does God or his son say anything anywhere in the entire book of scripture to indicate that they are apathetic about righteousness or unrighteousness? Did anyone at any point in Scripture dare suggest that perfect righteousness is optional and that occasional sin is okay? I will say with confidence that no such idea is even hinted at in the entire book of Scripture. God did not say that we are not perfect, just forgiven. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me. Be thou perfect. Jesus never once said that we are not perfect, just forgiven. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Jesus did not say we are not perfect, just forgiven. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 14, and in John chapter 8, verse 11, to go and sin no more. Peter never said that we are not perfect, but just forgiven. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. John never said, We are not perfect, just forgiven. But John said in First John chapter 5, and uh, in First John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, This then is a message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. John said in First John chapter 2, verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
Paul never said we are not perfect, just forgiven. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34, awake to righteousness and sin not. This idea that we are not perfect, just forgiven, has no root in scripture, but it is the invention of men who were deceived by the writings of Paul simply because they personally had no heart to be righteous and no heart to listen to God. The truth is that God is radically devoted to righteousness and that any act of unrighteousness is totally unacceptable in his eyes. You simply will not find anything in scripture that even begins to hint something to the contrary. Yes, the letters of Paul, if read by themselves, could give some traction to the idea that we can't be perfect, so we instead just need forgiveness. But as I said earlier, these false ideas only arise when we place the letters of Paul above the authority of God's own words. If you read the letters of Paul under the authority of God and his son, you will not be led astray by the things Paul says. While you may not immediately understand what Paul is trying to say, you will be confident that he is saying nothing contrary to what God and his son have already established. Contrary to popular belief, the gospel of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with covering up the shortcomings of those who are apathetic about righteousness. Nor is the gospel of Jesus Christ intended to benefit those who do not diligently listen to God with all their heart. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simply God's way of helping those who hunger and thirst for righteousness obtain the thing they desire. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ growing into a fully mature child of God that walks in perfect righteousness would be impossible. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that opens a door for us to start a journey towards the perfect righteousness that God desires and requires. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not one-dimensional. It is not one-dimensional, and it has more than one purpose and function. However, each separate function of the gospel reveals the true liberty-loving character of God. And this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Righteousness and liberty are one and the same, and the gospel of Jesus Christ proves over and over and over again that my God is a God who loves liberty, and that he is a God who wants me to walk inside the same liberty he enjoys. All aspects of the gospel are related to God's love for liberty and his commitment to see me enjoy that same liberty. Here are a few of the ways the gospel is related to liberty. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's way of ensuring that only those who truly hunger for righteousness enter into the world to come. This is not an evil thing, but it is a very good thing. God does not want the world to come to be inhabited by those who only pretend to love liberty just so they can gain access into that world. He wants the integrity and beauty of the new earth forever preserved, and this will be accomplished by only allowing those who truly love that which is right and just inside the doors. God understands that the only way one will truly enter into Christ is by sincerely listening to God. There is simply no other way to truly enter into Christ other than diligently listening to God. Those who are not passionate about what is good and right will not listen to their Creator, and if they do not listen to their Creator, they will never sincerely come to the Christ that can save. Only God can lead us to the true and saving Christ. Those who are not passionate about righteousness will not listen to God, and they will never find a true door that leads to righteousness. While some who do not listen to God might profess belief in a Jesus that supposedly died to take the punishment for their sins, they will never believe in a true Christ that can set them free from the dead works of unrighteousness. These men will then arrive at the judgment seat only to find that they are not dressed in a proper attire that is required to gain entrance into God's new and forever earth. The attire required to enter into the world to come is the righteousness of God. 
When we stand at the seat of judgment, it must be apparent that we love righteousness and liberty as much as God, and it must be apparent that we are a people who would do nothing to ever destroy the peace and contentment of another. And this garment of righteousness can only come through our walking with God, and our walking with God can only happen after we have entered into Christ. And the only way we will enter into Christ is if we diligently listen to God. And the only way we will diligently listen to God is if we hunger and thirst for righteousness and cling to him because we recognize that he is the only one who can provide what we desire. Those who are not willing to do the right thing of diligently listening to their diligently listening to their creator are not the kind of people we want walking around the world to come. If they were apathetic about right and wrong in this earth, they will be just as apathetic about it in the next earth. And that would not be fair or right to everyone else who is there. I want to know that I will forever be safe from the oppression of others once I enter into God's new earth. And the only way to have that confidence is to know that everyone there entered in by the same hunger and thirst for righteousness that I entered in with. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's good and wise way of making sure that the integrity and liberty of the world to come is forever preserved. One other way the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals the liberty-loving nature of God is per by providing me with the yes I must give to God before he can start work in my life. In order to become a man that is fully mature in righteousness, I have to spend much time with God. God must enter into my life through his Holy Spirit so that he can lead me towards this goal of righteous maturity. Without his presence in my life, arriving at this goal is impossible. However, before God will enter into my life, I must give him proof that I truly do want him to come in and do this work. But this is where things get very complicated for a liberty-loving God. You see, this is the problem that God has. It was his idea and desire to make me righteous well before it became my desire to be made righteous. And since God is a lover of liberty, he has the utmost respect for my time and space. God would not dream of entering into my life and starting a work without first knowing that I truly desire for him to do so. So all God can do is gently and politely knock at my door until I answer. He will then ask for permission to enter and begin the work of making me righteous. However, the way I express my permission for him to enter is by agreeing to not put forth any effort at all to accommodate his presence. As a lover of liberty, God understands that it is never right or fair to obtain your desire at the expense of someone else's inconvenience. And since making me righteous is first and foremost God's desire, he will not enter in until I assure him that I will do nothing out of the natural while he is present. He wants me to just go on living my life as I was before he entered and let him quietly do the work on my behalf. But this in return creates an impossible situation for me because I am so filled with reverence for this God who knocked at my door. And since I desire to have him near as much as he desires to be near, I can't help but to be extra careful to make sure that I am obeying his request to not go out of my way on his behalf. But do you see my carefulness to not go out of my way on his behalf is actually an act of going out of my way on his behalf. Because if he was not present, I wouldn't have to worry about not going out of my way. He insists that I just remain natural when he is present. But my effort to be natural is an unnatural action in and of itself. And because of this, God cannot enter in to do the work he desires to do. He is too meek to stay in my presence when he knows that his presence is putting me out. And so he simply cannot stay and do his work. Once again, this is not God being a jerk. Rather, this is God being the truly kind and liberty-loving God that he really is. But this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into play. 
though I will not explain all the ins and outs of it right now, by entering into Christ and becoming one with Christ, I am able to say yes through Christ. You see, Christ truly understands the heart of his Father, and Christ is able to truly be himself when in the presence of his Father. Christ has great reverence and respect for his Father, and he knows that the greatest honor he can show his Father is to relax and be his true self whenever his Father is near. So for that reason, Christ and his Father are always able to abide together. When I enter into Christ, I still do not fully understand the heart of God, and I still am not comfortable in the presence of God. But as I abide in Christ, God doesn't see my discomfort. He only sees the comfort of his Son. And so by staying inside of Christ, I am by default staying inside the presence of God. I become a partaker of the Holy Spirit by abiding in Christ, and I am able to learn from the Father as I abide in his presence. Eventually, a wonderful day will come in which I too will learn that God really does want me to be my true self. And once that happens, God will be able to fully abide in me and teach me the ways of righteousness. Without the intercession of Christ, I could never partake of God's Holy Spirit. Because I desire the presence of God, it is impossible for me to act natural when he is around. I will either be fake as I try to do everything perfect, or I will have to use effort to make it appear like I am not trying to do everything perfect. So for that reason, I can't say yes to God with the yes he requires. But God knew all of this, and he provided the yes that I couldn't give through the faith of his own son. And through all of this, he has proved once again that he is the God of liberty. He has proved that he did not create me in order to place me under any kind of burden or bondage. So much as he committed to my liberty that he didn't even, didn't even require me to provide my own yes. He provided the yes that I needed at his own expense. Now, the most notable way that the gospel of Jesus Christ proves the liberty-loving nature of God is by giving me the ability to walk according to the truth. It is only when we walk according to the truth of who we are that we are really free, and it is only when we are walking according to the truth of who we are that we will be perfectly righteous. The gospel of Jesus Christ opens a door that enables me to walk according to the truth. Let me explain. When God decided to create a world and fill it with conscious beings that could enjoy the goodness of God, God recognized that those beings would need to be righteous. One of the desires that God would fill these beings with is a desire to fellowship with others of their kind. However, in order for two people with individual wills to exist in the same place, those two people would have to fully respect the things that rightfully belong to the other. If they did not have this quality, then one person might carelessly do something that would frustrate the will of the other person, and the joy of fellowship would be lost in the misery of strife. The only way to avoid this potential for strife was to ensure that these men walked in righteousness. If God was not righteous himself, and if God was not utterly devoted to liberty, God could have simply chosen to give these men a list of rules to follow to ensure that neither one would ever violate the will of another. And in order to make sure that these rules were strictly followed, God could, orda God could ordain a severe and swift consequence any time they were violated. However, since God is a God who loves liberty, establishing righteousness through a law was not an option. The first reason God would not establish righteousness through a law was because it would not be right to place the men he chose to create under such a burden. Man did not choose to create themselves, and man did not choose to be in a situation where righteousness was necessary. This was God's idea to create men that needed righteousness, and since this was his idea, he has to provide the righteousness at his own expense and power. 
It would not be fair of God to create man with a desperate need and then place man under the burden of providing that need for themselves. A liberty-loving God is a God who sets things free. He does not place things in bondage. And that is exactly what would have happened if he required righteousness to a law. Men would have been born and placed under an immediate burden that God did not want them to carry. The second reason that God could not establish righteousness through a law is that the concept actually contradicts itself. To make sense of this, replace the word righteousness with the word liberty. Trying to create liberty by placing men under a law immediately destroys all hope of liberty. If someone is under a law or mandate, then that person is not truly free. Yes, a law can keep someone safe from the evil and frustrating acts of another, but it also binds those who must now walk carefully to ensure that their actions never cross the line that God established. Even if the person had no desire to break the law, the presence of the law would create an unhealthy pressure and fear that is contrary to the liberty that God desires. If you traveled to a country with barbaric penalties for exceeding the speed limit, your time in the country would be miserable. Even if you were the kind of person who naturally chose to drive slow, you still would not be able to relax when driving if you knew that breaking the speed limit would cost you a year in prison. Your own natural instincts to drive slowly would not be enough to keep you free of stress. So your time driving in that country would always be a time of fear and bondage. And this is how it would be if men were forced to be righteous under the law. Even if men were righteous at heart and had no reason to break the law, the presence of the law itself would rob the world of all joy and peace. Every day would be a day of bondage as you carefully walk to make sure that you didn't break the law. In this environment, true love towards your fellow man cannot exist. Even though your actions of keeping the law might be a good thing for your neighbor, in your heart you would have no goodwill towards your neighbor. Instead, you would resent your neighbor because you were forced to walk carefully and in bondage on his behalf. You would never see your neighbor as someone to enjoy and rejoice in, but you would instead only see them as a burden in your life. And this is not what God desired. It is God's desire to watch men as they truly enjoy the presence of one another. God does not want me to resent my neighbor. God wants me to be thankful that I have my neighbor, and you can't be thankful for someone you resent. And if I was forced to always walk carefully on their behalf, I couldn't help but resent them. God understood all of these things I just mentioned, and for that reason, establishing righteousness through a law was never an option. It never once crossed the mind of God to establish righteousness with a list of do's and don'ts. God had a much better plan in store. God's plan was to simply create every man perfectly so that righteousness would be present inside their natural behavior. It was God's plan to create each and every individual in such a way that their natural actions would be harmless. This way, all a person would have to do in order to be righteous is simply walk according to their true nature. As long as they walked according to the truth of who they were, they would have no capacity to harm their neighbor, and they would not see their neighbor as a burden. All men would just naturally live as God designed them, and in the process of living with no thought or care, everyone would be safe from a fence. And this is exactly what God set out to do. When God created Adam, he created Adam perfectly, and all the seed that was inside of Adam was also made perfect. The entire human race that lived inside the loins of Adam was perfectly righteous, as Adam was perfectly righteous. Men would have to do nothing at all to be righteous. They would only need to be true to themselves. And as long as they walked true to themselves, 
causing offense to other another person would never happen. As long as men would walk by the truth, they would be perfectly harmless and perfectly free. This perfect nature that God placed in man is what the scripture often refers to as the truth. For clarity, I need to say that almost nothing in Scripture is one-dimensional. Nearly every important word and phrase in Scripture has several different God-ordained applications. The same can be said about the word truth. As I have grown in understanding these past few years, the word truth has taken on several different and important meanings. For instance, one important meaning of the word truth is in reference to the true character of God. So when the scripture talks about growing into the knowledge of the truth, it is, an admon- it is an admonition to continue growing until you understand the true nature of God. However, a second meaning for the word truth is a reference to the true self that God originally created. So when the scripture encourages us to keep walking until we come to the knowledge of the truth, it is an admonishment to continue growing until you become confident in the true self that God created. For once we become confident in the true self that God created, it is then that we will be truly righteous. Only then will we be able to forsake living by the law and enter into the place of true liberty. Once we learn to walk according to the truth, we will be perfectly righteous with no effort of being righteous. Once we learn to walk according to the truth, we will be perfectly free to be the us that God designed us to be while putting forth no thought whatsoever into making sure that our actions are safe and harmless to others. We will not walk this way because we don't care about righteousness, but we will walk this way because we are confident that God made us perfectly and trust that our perfect truth is perfectly harmless to others. Walking according to the truth is also referred to in Scripture as walking according to the Spirit. When you see the term walking according to the Spirit, the word Spirit in that instance is not directly related to the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to walk by the Spirit without the Holy Spirit, but walking by the Spirit does not mean we are walking according to the Holy Spirit. When a scripture talks about walking by the Spirit, it simply means to walk by the part of us that is natural. Inside every human, there is a natural creature that is waiting to be set free. However, because we feel the need to not offend and because we are afraid of making mistakes, we choose to walk carefully and make choices and decisions with the effort of our physical mind. Instead of walking in the freedom of our God-ordained natural design, we choose to walk in the bondage of mental effort. And we do this simply because we have no confidence in the God who created us. If we were confident that God made us perfectly and that he created us with the capacity to naturally make the good and right choices that lead to joy and happiness, we would never feel the need to enter into the bondage of using our physical mind as a source to guide our life. We would instead walk in the freedom of simply living and doing that which came naturally all day long. But as long as this confidence in God is not present, we will walk by the effort of our physical mind. This need to use energy from our mind to make sure that we do not offend is what the scripture is talking of when it refers to men walking by the flesh. When we are walking by the flesh, we are living life by our own wisdom and power. When we are walking by the flesh, we are trusting in our own ability to do the right thing. So when we are trusting in our flesh, we are not able to do the will of God. The will of God is written into our natural design. As long as we are walking by the natural design, we will be perfectly safe and perfectly righteous, always doing the good will of God. But when we try to live life by the power and wisdom of our own mind, it is only then we veer off course and violate the will of God and ultimately trespass against our neighbor. 
Walking by the flesh requires the use of our physical mind, but walking by the Spirit relies on nothing from ourself. When we walk by the Spirit, we are fully relying on the good work God did when He created us at the very beginning and trusting that He did His job just right. As long as we are walking by the Spirit, we will be righteous. It is impossible to offend once we fully learn to walk by the Spirit. But as long as we are living carefully, we are living by our own wisdom. And living by our own wisdom is going to always result in oppression of some kind. Let me help you understand this better by directing your attention to the beast of the earth. Look at the dog. The dog has no concept of right and wrong, and he lives a life that is perfectly free. Even though this dog is not aware of his trust, this dog is actually filled with trust towards his creator. This dog never questions his actions and never uses mental effort to alter his actions, and he gets along just fine. He gets along just fine because he is always walking according to the truth. This dog is walking exactly as God designed him to walk, and for that reason, the dog is always righteous. The dog lives with no condemnation and no fear of messing things up. He just lives as he was created to live, and he unknowingly loves every minute of it. This dog is righteous. This dog is walking according to the truth. This dog is walking according to the Spirit. And this is exactly how God designed Adam. Inside of Adam was placed everything that Adam needed to live a successful life of righteousness. Had Adam not obtained the knowledge of right and wrong, Adam would have simply lived his life and enjoyed his life with no thought of whether or not he was doing the right thing. Instead of carrying the burden of worrying about right and wrong, Adam would live with the same freedom as the dog. Only Adam would have the ability to recognize his life of freedom and be made thankful for it. This was God's plan for establishing righteousness without a law. God would not give man rules to live by. He would instead just design them perfectly so that they would not need any rules. However, in addition to creating them perfectly, he also had to give them an inward satisfaction. Only in the presence of perfect contentment and satisfaction could they trust the true self. So essentially, God's desire for us to walk according to the truth is only present when it's true that we are perfectly satisfied and content in our soul. If we do not have perfect satisfaction and contentment in the soul, then we better not walk naturally. For if our soul is not satisfied and happiness is not present, our natural state is one of lust and desire. And in that place of lust and desire, our natural actions will be actions that trespass into the life of others. Let me explain it like this. Let's say that you just baked a delicious cake for your neighbor. You then have to leave the house to pick up a few items. As you leave your house, it is not likely that you're going to tell your children to just act natural while you're away. For you realize that your children like cake and that if they walk naturally with no thought of right and wrong, they are going to immediately reach for the cake as soon as you leave the house. So long as your children have an inward desire for the cake, you cannot leave them in the care of their own natural desires, for it is their natural desire to eat the cake. You would instead leave your children under the law. You would leave the house but instruct the children to not eat the cake. You cannot trust these children to walk according to the truth because their truth is not safe. But if you baked a cake for your children as well and fed the cake to your children before you left the house and let them eat until they were fully satisfied, you could then leave the children home without a law. If you knew their bellies were full, fully satisfied, and if you knew that they had no more desire for cake, you could instruct them to just walk naturally while you were away with no fear that they would trespass against the cake you made. And so it is with man. It is God's desire that men walk according to the truth. 
but only, only under the assumption that the soul of the man is fully satisfied. If this man has a soul that is not satisfied, then his truth is a truth that is going to trespass against his neighbor in some way. In his dissatisfaction, this man is going to this man is going to seek out satisfaction, and in his pursuit of satisfaction, he is going to abuse the planet and use more resources than he is entitled to. In his quest to become happy, he will do nothing but consume. He will consume the resources of the world and create waste and pollution as he does, and he will consume the time and energy of those around him in his quest to be happy. This unhappy man cannot be trusted to walk according to the truth because his truth is that his soul is not satisfied. God realized that man needed contentment and God had a plan to provide it. God created a way to provide man with perfect and unending contentment so that he could always walk according to the truth. The way God accomplished this was by breathing a spiritual desire into the man. This desire would be the chief desire of the man's heart. Then after breathing this desire into the man's heart, God would provide the satisfaction of this desire so that the man would live with a soul that was always satisfied. This desire that God would breathe into man was a desire to please God. God would bless man with his desire to please God. And so long as men would walk by the spirit and the truth, God would express his pleasure to the man through the presence of his Holy Spirit. This way, the man would always have an inward contentment and could continue to always walk by the truth. Then as long as a man would walk by the truth, God would be pleased and express his pleasure so that the man could be satisfied. And then as he was satisfied, he could walk by the truth and please God. And God could then express his pleasure to the man so that the man could be satisfied and walk by the truth. And yes, I know I was repeating myself, and that was because I was trying to make the point that this was a cycle in which one thing depended on the other. Man could not walk in the truth unless he had the pleasure of God upon him. And God could not express his pleasure towards man unless he was walking according to the truth. Only in walking by the truth could the man be righteous. And if the man wasn't walking in righteousness, God could not be pleased. But as long as man was walking righteously by walking by the truth, God could express his pleasure to the man and satisfy the man's desire to please God. So Adam's hope of walking righteously was directly connected to his knowledge that he was pleasing God. As long as that chief desire of Adam's heart was fulfilled, Adam would not be overcome with any kind of unnatural desire and lust. And Adam could then be confident that his truth and natural spirit were trustworthy. To ensure that Adam would walk by the truth, even when Adam did not yet have faith in his own perfection, God created Adam without any concept of right and wrong. This would enable Adam to walk according to the truth and live righteously, even when he didn't yet believe he really was perfect. As a result, God could then rightfully convey his pleasure to Adam as Adam walked righteously by the truth. You see, it was God's ultimate goal for Adam to learn that he really was made perfect. It was God's goal for Adam to one day become confident in his creator so that Adam would live in true confidence that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. But this kind of faith in his creator and in his, and in his own perfection was not something that Adam could be born with. That kind of confidence could only arise in Adam through time and experience. As Adam would walk according to the truth, and as Adam would get to know his creator, Adam would come to understand that messing up is simply impossible because his creator made him perfect. But until that day would come, the only way that God could ensure the righteousness of Adam was by creating Adam without a concept of right and wrong. This way, Adam would have no reason to walk 
with carefulness. If Adam did not fear doing the wrong things, he would never be tempted to walk carefully through the effort of his own mind and wisdom. Without a concept of right and wrong, Adam could walk by the truth effortlessly, even while he did not yet have any faith in, of his own that he was indeed perfect. By the good wisdom of God, Adam was created without a concept of right and wrong. This enabled Adam to walk by the truth, even when he did not have confidence in the truth. And this allowed God to always express his pleasure over Adam. But the fact that Adam had no ability to sin did not make Adam a robot. God would never create a man with a will and then make that man do what God wanted him to do. God will do nothing in our life without our consent. So even though Adam had no capacity to sin without the concept of right and wrong, Adam was able to always prove to his creator that it was his choice to abide in that place of ignorance and righteousness. Adam could express this by his choice to not eat from the tree that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Each and every day that Adam avoided the tree of knowledge, Adam was expressing to God his own desire to be in the spot God placed him. Adam had free will the entire time. But once the day came that Adam listened to Eve instead of listening to God, Adam essentially said no to God and made the choice to walk by his flesh instead of walking by the Spirit. Now in truth, I don't really think that Adam had a full grasp of what he was doing. And even though it was technically his choice to eat from the tree of knowledge, he did so under the pressure of his wife. In all honesty, I am pretty confident that Adam didn't want to eat from the tree of knowledge. However, Adam did want to please Eve. And his choice to listen to his wife over the voice of God came with a heavy price. Because once the knowledge of good and evil was present, Adam had a concept of right and wrong. And he had this concept of right and wrong when no faith in his perfection was yet present. So for this reason, Adam could not resist the temptation of walking carefully. Adam now understood that his actions had consequences. And with that recognition, Adam could not help but walk carefully and think things through because he wanted to make the right choice. Adam did not want to mess things up. And since he was not confident that his natural instincts were always the correct instincts, Adam had no choice but to start thinking everything through and using his own mental effort to make sure that he always did the right thing. That the, but the problem was that Adam's effort to do the right thing was not the right thing. The right thing was for Adam to trust in the truth and to trust in his natural spirit. But without faith that his creator made him perfectly, Adam had no hope of doing the right thing. For even if Adam had made an effort to walk by his spirit, he would still be making an effort to do that. He would have to reach for his own mental strength to find the strength to not use his mental strength. And of course, all of that involves using the mental effort that God has instructed him to avoid. And with Adam now reaching towards his own mental effort in order to do what is right, God could no longer express his pleasure to Adam. God was not pleased with Adam because Adam was now walking in bondage and unrighteousness. And without the pleasure of God upon him, Adam's soul was left destitute, and he had no way to enter back into the place of pleasing God. It wasn't that Adam couldn't for, it wasn't that God couldn't forgive Adam. That wasn't the problem at all. If Adam could have just repented from his action and went back to walking by the Spirit, God would have gladly received Adam. But repentance was impossible. In order to repent, Adam would need to quit trying and go back to not trying. But without the presence of faith in his perfection, Adam could not do that. In order to lay down his mental effort, Adam would have to concentrate and try really hard. And so his careful attempt to repent 
and not rely on his own mental energy and wisdom would require Adam to do the very thing he was trying to repent of. It wasn't that God would not receive Adam back. It is just that Adam had no way to enter back into the place he left behind when he chose to learn the concept of right and wrong. Repentance was impossible. Now, after Adam chose to live by his fleshly mind and effort, God was no longer pleased with Adam. When Adam was walking by his spirit, he was the friend of God. God loves liberty and God hates those that place others in bondage. While Adam was walking by the Spirit, he was a giver and protector of liberty. As long as Adam was walking by the Spirit, he was righteous. But once Adam began to live by his flesh, his actions were no longer consistent with liberty. So for, so for this reason, God could not express his pleasure to Adam. And without the pleasure of God upon Adam, Adam's soul became empty and Adam had to begin, and Adam had to, begin to search for happiness and contentment. And this is how the world became a cesspool of unrighteousness that it currently is. Have you ever wondered how one man's sin brought the entire human race under sin? This is how it happened. You see, when Adam disobeyed the command of God and ate from the tree of knowledge, he immediately became condemned. His chief heart desire to please God was no longer satisfied. This left Adam in a perpetual state of discontent. However, it was not only Adam that became condemned. You and I became condemned with him. How is this so? It is so because you and I were there inside of Adam when Adam disobeyed God. And as Adam became condemned, you and I were condemned right along with him. Let me read something from the book of Hebrews to help you understand. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, neither having beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually." Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even a patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them, received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better." And here men that die receive tithes, but there he received them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may say so, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, I know that was a bit lengthy and maybe a bit hard to understand, but the point the writer of Hebrews was trying to make was the importance of this king Melchizedek, who was a figure of the Christ. The writer of Hebrews tried to establish the importance of this great king by showing us that even Levi gave tithes to this king. You see, the tribe of Levi was a tribe of Israel that was appointed to receive tithes from the other 11 tribes. But the writer of Hebrews says that this king Melchizedek was so important that Levi actually gave tithes to him instead. But this seems silly on the surface because Levi was not yet born when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. However, according to the writer of Hebrews, this was not silly at all because Levi was technically there inside of Abraham when Abraham gave a tenth part of the spoils to Melchizedek. 
So by this logic, everything that happened to Abraham technically happened to those who would eventually be born as Abraham's descendants because they were there inside of Abraham as Abraham lived. So it is reasonable to conclude that this was written to help us understand how Adam's sin affected the entire race of mankind. You see, it wasn't just Adam that failed on that day. Instead, it was every man and woman who would later be born as a descendant of Adam. And that includes every man and woman since the beginning of time except for Christ Jesus himself. You were there when Adam failed, and his failure was your failure. When Adam became condemned before God, ye also became condemned before God. And this is a reason that no one in this world is truly satisfied. We were each born with the same desire to please God that Adam himself possessed. However, we all live with the knowledge that we are falling short of this desire. I am not saying that we are all consciously, that we all consciously recognize this desire to please God that is inside of us, but we do certainly feel the effects of not having this desire fulfilled. All of mankind lives with a sense of perpetual failure. It is a sense of failure that has driven man to live a life that does nothing but create chaos and destruction in the world around them. Take a deep and honest look at the world you live in and you will recognize that almost no one is seeking to live a life of enjoyment. Instead, everyone is working and striving to become something better than they currently are. We do not work to have the simple comforts that make life enjoyable. We instead work to build a life that is better than those around us. And if we are not seeking to be better than those around us, we are at least seeking to become equal to those around us. Everything we do is about status, and very little is about true and real enjoyment. We seek status and praise from others because we are convinced that this vain object can satisfy the void that exists inside of us. And yet, no matter how much praise we receive, it will never be enough. It will never be enough because the praise of man is not what we lack. What we lack is the praise of God. Without even realizing it, we are all desperate for the approval of the God that made us. You run to and fro and subject your body to brutal treatment, not because you like exercise, but because you are hoping to fill the void in your life that can only be filled by the praise and glory of God. No achievement is going to fill this void. No amount of money in the bank is going to fill this void. No house or vehicle is going to fill this void. No degree or job title is going to fill this void. The praise and glory of man will never satisfy what is missing from your life, for you are not designed to need the glory of man. You were created with a need to be praised by God. Even though you are not consciously aware of it, you are desperate to hear the words that were spoken over Christ at his baptism and transfiguration. You are desperate to hear God say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But until you turn your heart and attention to him, you have no hope of hearing those words. Your condemnation and sense of failure is the result of being with Adam when he failed. Your sense of failure is between you and your creator. But so long as you refuse to acknowledge his place in your life, and so long as you choose to not give him full authority over your life, you have no hope of hearing the words your heart is desperate to hear. Your unconscious desire to please God must become a conscious desire to please God. Then once it becomes our conscious desire to please God, God can undo the condemnation that we are under. No one else can set you free because you are not condemned because of anyone else. Your condemnation is between you and your creator, and only those who consciously turn to him and seek to please him can ever hear those lovely words that will finally set your heart free. The most precious words in the universe are this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
This world is a pit of destruction and unrighteousness that it is because no one is satisfied. We buy and purchase useless and joyless objects all because we foolishly believe that the next object we buy will finally do the trick and make us happy. Our landfills are all full and overflowing because we have no control over these self-destructive habits. We burn fuel that we don't need because we think we can drive ourselves to the place of contentment. We build houses well beyond our honest need and use up precious resources in a process because we foolishly believe that our trophy house can finally prove that we are not the failure we perceive ourselves to be. We then think that we are actually free people as we do these things, and never do we open our eyes and realize that we are not free at all. We are instead being driven by a power that is outside of ourself. We are driven by a voice that screams, you are a failure, you are a failure, you are a failure. We then work as slaves all our days trying to satisfy that powerful voice so that we can finally get some rest. But this rest will never come. Only one person can put put an end to this accusing voice, and that is the voice of God. It is unto him that you feel like a failure, and it is only him that can put an end to this voice that drives you to do the things that you really do not have a true and natural desire to do. Once again, look at the beast. Is your dog concerned about building a bigger and better house? Is your dog concerned about staying trim and fit? Is your dog concerned about getting a fancy degree? Is your dog concerned about making others think well of him? Is your dog concerned about getting a job with a title and pay scale that will impress others? No, of course not. Your dog is only concerned with true and real enjoyment. The dog is free of this bondage because he has no voice of condemnation in his head. My dog is not trying to outrun his condemnation because he has no condemnation to outrun. He is free to just live according to his truth. But you do not get to live according to your truth because you are under the yoke of condemnation. And only by fully turning your heart towards your creator can you find freedom from this cruel and meaningless existence. But how can God free a man from this cruel and meaningless existence? How can God say to a man, this is my son in whom I am well pleased? Once a man is condemned, he has no way back into the pleasure of God. In order to please God, this man must walk righteously. And in order to walk righteously, this man must walk according to his truth. But when we are not yet confident that our truth is reliable and perfect, we can't help but to walk by the carefulness of the flesh. God says that if we want to please him, that we need to walk according to the truth and quit living by our human effort. But since I don't have the faith as of yet, since I don't have that faith as of yet, I am going to have to force myself to use mental effort to accomplish this. So in order to not walk by the flesh, I have to resort to my flesh because I can't naturally cease to walk in a careful manner when I do not have faith that I am truly perfect and incapable of making a mistake. So even when I try really hard to not walk by the flesh, my effort to not walk by the flesh is just another way of doing the thing that I am trying not to do. This then leaves the door to pleasing God forever closed to me, and it makes it impossible for me to ever walk in the righteousness that God desires and requires of me. So it would seem that there is no hope to ever return to the place of walking according to the truth. And if I have no hope of walking according to the truth, I have no hope of walking in true righteousness. But this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into play. When Christ entered into the world, he did not enter as a seed of Adam. And since Christ Jesus did not enter into the world as a seed of Adam, Christ was not under the yoke of condemnation when he was born. Christ was born into the 
born into the world in true righteousness. And as long as Jesus would never choose to walk by the flesh, he could remain free of condemnation all the days of his life. After Adam's fall, Christ was the first man born into the world with a truly satisfied soul. Christ was born into the world with the assurance that he was pleasing God. To make a long story short, Christ never one time walked according to his flesh. Christ always lived by his natural truth. Even though Christ knew about the concept of right and wrong, Christ was able to ignore the temptation to worry about right and wrong by simply obeying his father's command to not worry about right and wrong. At first, Christ resisted walking by the flesh by simply choosing to obey his father. But as time went on, Christ realized for himself that he could fully trust the truth. By faithfully obeying his father and walking only by his truth, a day came in which he no longer obeyed his truth just as an act of obedience to his father. But he began to walk according to the truth freely without the use of obedience because he had developed his own confidence that his truth was perfect and reliable. In reality, Christ was perfect from the day he was born, but his perfection was of no real benefit to himself until he developed his own confidence that he was perfect in every way. Christ could not enjoy the liberty of walking by the truth until he had complete confidence in the truth. Prior to becoming fully confident in his perfection, he only walked according to the truth by the commandment of God. And even though he trusted the counsel of his father and stayed inside the truth, his doing so was not always easy and enjoyable. He was able to faithfully obey the truth because he enjoyed obeying his father. But the actual act of walking by the truth was not enjoyable because he wasn't yet confident in the truth. But once he came to understand that his truth really was perfect, Christ could then begin to experience the wonderful liberty of walking in the confidence of his perfection. The moment Christ came to fully trust that he was really perfect was illustrated by his transfiguration. The glory of God came upon Christ and announced that this was his son in whom he was well pleased. He was pleased because Christ was now walking righteously with no effort of obedience. Instead, he was now able to walk fully at ease in his truth because he was fully confident that God had made him just right. Christ would no longer be tempted to worry about right and wrong. He now understood that he was truly perfect and that he had no potential to mess up or make a mistake. Christ now had a perfected faith. Prior to this moment, Christ was able to obey his father and not walk according to the flesh because it was his sincere desire to obey his father. Christ did not resist walking by the flesh because he was confident that God had made him perfect, but he was able to resist walking by the flesh because it was his pleasure to obey his father. But through his faithful obedience to his father, Christ was able to learn that his truth really was perfect and trustworthy. He no longer resisted the flesh through obedience to his father, but he now did not need to resist the flesh at all because walking by the flesh was no longer a temptation. Since Christ now understood that he really was perfectly made by God, Christ would have no reason to walk by his own carefulness. The temptation to walk carefully is only a temptation to those who do not understand that they really are perfect. And because Christ understood that his truth was fully reliable, he would never even think of walking with carefulness again. Christ was now free to live without any concern of failing God. Christ was now free to... For Christ was now forever righteous because Christ now fully trusted in the truth. Christ would now forever walk by the Spirit. Jesus was now perfectly righteous and ready to pass through the day of judgment with flying colors. God could now easily grant Christ access into the world to come with confidence that Christ would never harm anyone. 
But the work of Christ was not yet done. Christ had to rescue his brothers and sisters from the fate that Adam brought them into. Now, please note, I am just going to give you a very brief idea as to how the death and resurrection of Christ empowered the dead and hopeless children of Adam to become the sons of God. I am just trying to prove to you that the true gospel is much different from the false gospel that is currently preached throughout the earth. I am just trying to say enough to attract the attention of those God might be trying to save through this message. If God chooses at a later time, I can thoroughly share all the ins and outs of the gospel, but at this present time, this concise and incomplete summary will have to do. When Christ died, his death was not deserved. Christ had never sinned, and therefore Christ was not worthy of death. So for this reason, God was able to righteously raise Christ from the dead. The scriptures tell us that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he spoke the words, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. These words are very important. But in reality, they were not super important for the sake of Christ. Christ walked as the Son of God his entire life. Christ walked in righteousness from start to finish. Christ never lost his place of being a Son of God. So for God to announce that Christ was his Son upon his resurrection was not a super important announcement for the sake of Christ himself. This announcement did not specifically add anything new to the status of Christ. However, this announcement was very important for those that God would choose to place inside of Christ. While Christ was not worthy of death, the children of Adam were. All the children of Adam have walked by the flesh and have done works of unrighteousness. So as a result, they were rightfully worthy of death. It is a very serious thing with God to trespass against your neighbor. And as I said before, God loves liberty and it is his love for liberty that makes him so terrifying. Because he loves liberty so much, he will immediately put to death anyone who frustrates the liberty of another. And since all men had trespassed against their neighbor in some way, all Adam's children were worthy of death. However, even though God is passionate about liberty, he is also extremely reasonable. God understood that we were helpless against the power of sin. Since we were all born condemned before God, we had no choice but to use our flesh and attempt to do the things we saw as right. So for this reason, God chose to be patient with man until the day of redemption. As a child of Adam, I have no hope of becoming righteous. I have no way to gain the approval of God. And without the approval of God, I cannot be content in my soul. And even if I was content in my soul, I could still not walk according to the spirit without confidence that my spirit could always be trusted. Unlike Christ, I do not have confidence that my spirit can be trusted. So my effort to not walk by the flesh would actually be an effort of the flesh. But God solves my predicament in this way. When God recognizes that it really is my desire to please him, and when he recognizes that I do truly want to do what is good and right in his eyes, God will begin to speak to me and lead me towards his son. And through the patient work of God, I will fully embrace his son. And once this happens, Christ receives me to be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. When that happens, I become one with Christ. Essentially, I become married to Christ. Then through my union with him, the Jason that was hopeless and could only trust in his flesh is put to death along with Christ on the cross. But since I am in Christ as I die, I do not stay in that place of death. I am instead raised with Christ. And as God speaks the words, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, I am born again as a righteous son of God. However, this time my righteousness is through the faith of Christ. In truth, I have no faith of my own. All I have is my recognition that God is deserving of my attention and obedience. I do not yet, yet have faith that I can walk by my spirit at all times. 
But through the faith of Christ, the pleasure that God has for Christ is also placed upon me. And for the first time in my life, I have the knowledge that I really am pleasing God. The chief desire of my heart to please my creator has been fulfilled, and I have life and contentment that abides permanently in my soul. And with the contentment forever inside of me, God is able to start the process of teaching me to walk by the Spirit. This is not something that happens overnight, but it will happen as you begin to learn and trust what God is saying. And the best part of all is that as we are learning to walk by the Spirit, we do not have to be afraid of our failure to not walk by the Spirit, because it is not our own righteousness by which God is pleased. Instead, it is the righteousness of Christ that we are walking in. The pleasure of God will not come and go as I fail and succeed, because His pleasure is not based on what I am doing and not doing. The pleasure of God I am enjoying upon me is a result of Christ's righteousness. So even when I do ignorantly reach for my flesh to ensure that I don't mess up, that sin is not counted against me. This enables me to walk with confidence in the presence of God and learn to truly walk by the truth. Knowing that I am safe inside the righteousness of Christ, I can just relax and let God teach me at the pace he has ordained. And through this faithful work of my creator, a day will come in which I too will have faith that I am perfect. Through the patient work of God and through my experience of walking by the Spirit and proving the reliability of walking by the Spirit, I will come to understand that I cannot go wrong so long as I walk according to the truth of who I am. Once this happens, I will never again be tempted to walk according to the wisdom and strength of my own fleshly mind. I will instead forever walk in the liberty of truth. And as I walk in this liberty of truth, every action that flows out of me will be good and right in every way. I will forever be a man that is safe and harmless to those around me. It will be impossible to offend because I will always walk by the perfect nature that God placed inside of me when he created me. Once this work is complete, I will be ready to inhabit the new earth that God has prepared for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I did not say all of this to give you a formula for salvation. There was not a formula for salvation because salvation is by the will of God. Instead, it was only my goal to illustrate that the true gospel is very different than the false gospel. The false gospel is a gospel for those who are apathetic about righteousness. The false gospel insists we can't be righteous, so we so we need to be forgiven instead. The false gospel is for those who simply want the reward of righteousness and have no desire to truly be righteous. The true gospel is a gospel for those who want to walk in perfect righteousness. The true gospel is for those who desire to know that all their actions are pleasing to the one that created them. The true gospel does not overlook our inability to walk righteously. Rather, it is the power and wisdom of God that will enable us to become perfectly righteous. The true gospel is not for those who are apathetic about righteousness. The true gospel is for those who are radical about righteousness. I would like to tell you that I have no idea how this false gospel came to exist. It is so silly and contrary to the truth that it's hard to imagine how it came to be preached and believed. But I can't tell you that I have no idea where this false gospel came from because in reality, I do know. This false gospel came to exist by the wisdom of God. God allows this false gospel to exist so that he can separate the wheat from the chaff. Those who are apathetic about righteousness will be content with a gospel that merely offers them forgiveness for their unrighteous works. These apathetic souls have so little regard for what is good and right, they gladly walk in the knowledge that they can walk in unrighteousness and still have eternal life. These souls are not concerned about righteousness itself. Rather, they are just concerned about not getting into trouble for failing to be righteous. 
As a result, these apathetic souls will have no hope of entering in to the world to come. And that is a good thing. Those who will inherit the world to come will have no desire to share the planet with others who are apathetic about righteousness. We will instead want to live with the confidence that everyone else is committed to righteousness as we are ourselves. So for this reason, we can be thankful for the false gospel. It is God's good and wise way to keep the imposters out of the world to come. God is confident that those who are truly devoted to righteousness will never be satisfied with the idea of just having their unrighteousness forgiven. Instead, the true lovers of righteousness will not rest until we know that we are spotless in every way. So for this reason, God knows that he will not lose any true children to the false gospel. The true children of God will find the false gospel to be something that is less than satisfying so that they will continue to search for more. And in their search, they will ultimately find the truth. I now ask, what camp do you fall into? Are you satisfied to simply believe that your shortcomings are going to be overlooked by God on the day of judgment? Or do you hunger and thirst to be made clean in every way? It is time to make a choice. You can no longer hide under the veil of ignorance. It's time for some of you to repent. It's time to repent of your apathy towards righteousness. And it's time to repent for your choice to listen to man instead of God. It is time to repent for not seeking the will of your creator with all your heart. It's time to turn to him and seek his face as never before. Do not worry about doctrine and do not worry about trying to figure the ins and outs of what I just told you. God is faithful to finish what he starts. All you need to do is begin to seek pleasing him instead of obtaining his rewards. And when pleasing him becomes your chief's heart's desire, God will lead you into all truth. He will place you in Christ when the time is right. So do not worry about a thing other than seeking to please the one that created you. Turn your heart and attention to him and he will make sure that you find what you are looking for. All who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, not by their own efforts, but through the patient work of God. Just seek his face and he will take care of the rest. Now, if this sermon remains dead in cyberspace, I will know that my work is complete. But if the sermon takes off like wildfire, I will take that as my cue to continue speaking. If this is by chance the beginning of God's final movement on this earth, I will gladly continue to teach as he desires. Anything I post in the future will be located at the same address. This podcast address is savedfromdeath.com. That's savedfromdeath.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can send an email to savedfromdeathcontact at gmail.com. Savedfromdeathcontact at gmail.com. With that said, I will now shut up and leave what happens next in the hands of God. Thank you for listening.